0: To the Rhythms podcast. I'm Brian Wise, the editor of the magazine. This week I'm talking to acclaimed guitarist Richard Thompson about his memoir, Beeswing Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975 published by Faber Overseas and available through Allen & Unwin in Australia. One of the world's greatest guitarists, Richard Thompson established his reputation with Fairport Convention in the UK through six albums recorded with Linda Thompson and his own solo albums, which now number more than 20. During the podcast, I've included a selection of music that Thompson recorded over the years. I'll tell you what you've been listening to after we talk to Richard Thompson. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Which is fabulous. And you've written it in conjunction with Scott Timber, who unfortunately passed away. Can you tell us about his role and a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, Scott was uh, a music journalist, uh, worked at the Los Angeles Times for many years, for decades. Also wrote for Los Angeles Review of Books. He's also an author of his own books as well. Um, and Scott was someone I knew uh, you know, fairly well around the LA music scene. And he said, you know, you should really write a book about the 60s, it'd be so great. So I said, well, okay. Finally, after a couple of years of being harangued by Scott, I said, okay, let's do it. And we started out with an interview process, but I I found the results really not very satisfactory. Um, I I thought whatever voice I had, it was not coming across in that process. So I said look, I'll write it and you come in at the end and you can help me to shape it and edit it and all that kind of stuff but sadly Scott passed away before that could happen.
0: Is there a reason you titled it after one of your most loved ballads? Does that song capture something of the essence of a musician?
1: uh i think it, for me it captures something of the essence of the 60s people you know if, if you like falling through the safety net of society are either uh, voluntarily or involuntarily and i think the song deals with that certainly um and i knew a lot of people in the 60s so people i went to school with you know um who did not take the well-trodden path you know that they decided to not Got on the same road as their parents, that they wanted to do something different, they wanted to explore, they wanted to get into spiritual things, uh, they wanted to get into drugs, you know. So, so I knew a lot of people who just basically dropped out and, uh, with varying uh, consequences, you know, people died young, people became drug dealers, drug addicts, some just, just did that for a few years and, and then went back to a straighter way of life. But, but, but I, th- I think, um, I, I think you know for me the song summed up some of those attitudes anyway in, in the 60s so I thought that would be a good title for the song for the, for the book I mean sorry
0: you probably heard the most frequent complaint that I've heard about the book it's too short it stops in it's too 75. <laughs> It's got too many words.
1: Oh. Stop. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I, I read those doorstops. You know, this like the Keith Richard biography. You know, Pete Townsend one, uh, Paul McCartney one, and and I get a bit bored two thirds of the way through. And I, I think you know, it's it's all about award shows. You know, once you get past the age of forty or something, um, you know, oh, I, you know, Eric pop round for tea, and you know, it's, it's just it gets a bit more boring. And, and, and I didn't want to taper off in that way. so, so I thought, well, I'll keep it short, and I'll keep it to a certain time period uh i wasn't keen to write about the the rest of the 70s particularly because i I didn't feel musically that that i I did a very good job so um you know 77 to you know 80 um i i I would want to skip over anyway and uh i suppose if i was going to pick it up again it'd be like 81 you know the tour from hell as it was described um but then you know we'll we'll see we'll see uh perhaps there'll be volume two somewhere down the road
0: It's beautifully written and there's some terrific descriptions and it's that sets it apart from a lot of other memoirs. I, I, I'd like to uh, observe.
1: Well, I, I was trying to be musically focused and uh, trying not to be too gossipy and too uh, too kiss and tell, if you like. And probably some of the more libelous stuff uh, did get taken out of the book. Um, th- th- there was things I, I, I thought I could get away with, but I didn't. Um, I, I tried to just slander dead people. That seems safer, <laughs> really. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I tried to, you know, to. to to, to write about music, but you know you have to int- introduce other characters if if you do that that, that that's so. Um... You know, however much you, you you don't want to name drop. You have to mention some people that you were sitting backstage with, you know, in the sixties. And, and they were just guys back then. I mean, they were just people you sat in the dressing room with. You know, they weren't legends yet that came later.
0: Your memories are remarkably clear in most cases. How much research did you have to do to check the accuracy of your own memory of these events? Or did Scott check them or
1: <laughs> I'm not sure I did check the accuracy. <laughs> I I, I think my memory was very selective, actually, because there's stuff that I really do not remember. Maybe I was drunk or something um, out of it so people tell me things and i think really that happened uh you know so i wrote about stuff i could remember and uh i can remember most of that stuff fairly lucidly and it is interesting sometimes to compare notes with um my contemporaries and get their version of what happened and it's interesting how we frequently diverge but obviously my version is the true one
2: i was 19 when i came to town they called it the summer of love they were burning babies, burning flags, the hawks against the doves. I took a job in the steaming down on Cardron Street, and I fell in love with a laundry girl who was working next to me. Well, she was a rare thing, fine as a bee's wing, so fine a breath of wind might blow her away. She was a lost child well she was running wild she said as long as there's no price on love i'll stay and you wouldn't want me any other way
0: mentioned some of the musicians you heard when you were young often by your parents and your father of course also introduced the scottish influence and george form mm. is an intriguing name just one of the names that you mention it and, and uh, funnily enough i saw one of his movies the other month about the isle of man tt race he
1: oh yeah a yes, classic character. yeah
0: and uh, i know that y- you love George Formby's music, or I assume you do from the way you write about it?
1: Oh, I do. Uh, me and George Harrison both, you know, uh, big George Formby fans. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I, lo- I love the songs.
1: I, I love the whole, the whole goofy humor, the whole thing, um, I, especially he was an interesting uh, ukulele player. And, and I, I think I mentioned in the book, you know, how he had this right hand technique that, that um, actually inspired me to, to, to pick a little differently with, with my right hand on the guitar. So, um, yeah, for me, he's a kind of guitar inspiration in a bizarre way.
0: That, that's, that was an interesting revelation because I don't know if anybody would have ever picked that George Formby was a guitar inspiration to you.
1: Uh-huh. Well, that's why you have to read the book, you see.
0: Well, you played the guitar when you were at school. When did you discover that you had a talent for it that you might make a living out of? I know that obviously some of the people you went on to work with you were school friends with, but when did it suddenly strike you? Because you weren't as you, by your own admission you weren't a great student, you weren't an, a greatly academic. No, I, th- I
1: think uh, we just kind of drifted into being professional musicians. You know, at school, I, I mentioned again in the book how uh, I was kind of outgunned as a classical guitar player. There, there were two really, really good uh, classical guitar players in, in my class at school, which is bizarre, really. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, you know, I'll, I'll play folk music, I'll, I'll play, you know, rock, rock and roll. And I suppose, you know, I, I started playing with um, Ashley and Simon from Fairport, you know, when we were about, when I was about 16. And we sort of played steadily. And then at some point, I suppose I was 18, and we th- we thought, well, you know, um, we're busy. You know, uh, we're getting a lot of gigs. So I have to give up my day job. I was working, you know, making stained glass windows. And, um, and I, I, I don't think anybody thought this was something that we're going to do the rest of our lives. I think we thought this is fun for a couple of years. Then I have to get a straight job, you know, or then I'll go back to university or art school or something. You know, I'll, I'll get a real job. So uh, we just kind of kept going. And occasionally, I look over my shoulder and think, "Oh, I've been doing this for two years now. That's amazing." And then there'd be five years, ten years, twenty years. So it was just, you know, incremental. Really, there wasn't this sudden moment where you thought, um, "Wow, you know, I'm really going to make a living at this." I think at some point, I thought I can survive as a musician, not necessarily playing my own music, but I can survive. I can play in other people's bands. I can be just somebody on the folk scene. You know, I can play the folk clubs and I can keep going that way. So, yeah, that was about as, uh, as, um, as deep as I thought about it, I think.
0: I suppose in those days, looking back, you probably had aspirations just to survive rather than become famous or make a, a lot of money. And you talk about fame, and I'll ask you about that later. But an article in The Guardian last month revealed that you and Hugh Cornwell, one of your schoolmates, played in a backing band for Helen Shapiro. Is that correct? I don't think it is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think we we did a gig backing a uh, kind of a Helen Shapiro lookalike or soundalike. Uh, um, I don't think it was actually Helen Shapiro. Uh, I think Hugh Hugh's memory might be even more faulty than mine in that in that sense. Yeah, it, was, it was some charity gig. I think uh, at Hornsey Town Hall. Yeah, there's this 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 young singer, Helen Shapiro-ish. I think I think she was quite young. She was like fifteen, sixteen years old, and and, and we backed her yeah cuz Alain it was already a star at that point so that didn't happen i don't think
0: people will either be surprised or possibly gratified to learn that your music teacher caught you a musical no uh he
1: certainly did yes um i had atrocious uh reports from the music master who who was very uh he was very austrian and um and very single minded about about um what was good and what wasn't good music uh so didn't get a lot of leeway there um i was also you know because i i, I picked up music so quickly by ear that I, I kind of bluff my way through through music class um uh, and, and pretend that, that I, I was i was i was reading the dots when actually i was just remembering the dots uh, remembering the notes i mean until i got found out and, and then uh, i got in trouble so um it's, i wasn't wasn't happy at school but um music started to make more sense a bit later
2: the window to see which way the wind blows, it seems as though a hurricane is due today. Sunny on the outside, stormy on the inside, stormy weather's always best for making hay. Here comes looks
3: like he's been faster, with his friends in the end
2: where directors roam. like a banderillo with his cigarillo, rubs the rich, rubs the rest, brings it all back home.
0: Airport started, like many other bands around that era, doing cover versions. I know you loved The Birds. Then you got deeper into the English tradition. Why were you, were you so intent? What drove you? Uh, I know that you had the background and you had the interest in the music, but what drove you to try and do something different and create something
1: I think we always wanted to be different. Even when we were covers band, we we try and go for the the obscure covers. We wouldn't do stuff that other people did. Um that would be anathema to us. So we were always looking, you know, for B-sides, um, you know, obscurities, rarities. Um and I I think generally uh, we were yeah, uh, you know, a lyric band. Well, we love lyrics. Um so we wanted to cover you know, Phil Oak's songs and Joni Mitchell's songs and, and some Dylan and Richard Farina. Uh, and really no one else was doing that on, on the British music scene. You know, m- most m- most bands were blues-based, R&B-based, uh, soul-based uh, and had repertoires, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of matched that. Uh, and, and Fairport were a little, little bit different in that way. We, we, we just loved intelligent, smart lyrics.
0: You talk about the way in which Fairport were a groundbreaking band and you created something new. Do, do I detect a sense whereby you don't think the group has been given enough credit for that? Because when you write about it, when I listen back to that music, it's uh, obviously head and shoulders a l- uh, ahead of a lot of the other things that were happening at the time in that area.
1: Well, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, popular music. I mean, you know, it was still... Um you know, mar- marginal. It was, it, was, it was still folk rock, if you like. Not everybody was into that sort of thing. To sing with an English accent at that point was not very hip, didn't get you accolades. I mean, this is, you know, Legion Leaf came out at the same time as, you know, Cream were around, you know, you know, first Led Zeppelin album. You know, that, that was hip. That, that was um, the, the stuff that people were more inclined to listen to. So, um, you know, Fairport was always a bit marginalised and probably never achieved the commercial success um of a lot of other bands i mean we got awards later um we we got folk awards and and you know who knows where the time goes you know but uh the sandy denny song fairport's version of that is is it is, was voted uh most influential folk recording of all time you know which is uh so that's an accolade i mean that that's that's quite something but you know commercially not so much
0: uh, you were on top of the pops once <laughs>
1: Yes, we were. Yes, mm, yes. Uh, well, we charted. You know, um, we were sort of number nineteen or something in in, in, the, in the top twenty. So we got invited onto Top of the Pops, and and we hammed it up as much as we possibly could. Didn't take it at all seriously, as n- nobody else did really either. Um, it was all sort of a bit of a sham. Top of the Pops. You know, you weren't supposed to you weren't supposed to to play t- to a, a, a to to a, a backing track. But everybody did. You just did the lead vocals live uh, sometimes, not always. Um, So everyone would smuggle their backing track into the, the studio. (laughs) <laughs> and the musicians union weren't supposed to know about this and, and, and then you kind of mime along the, to the backing track but have live vocals and then, but then sometimes there weren't even live vocals it was just weird I mean it's just a strange thing but you know that was, that was one of our few brushes with um, actual popular music and, and uh, we didn't care for it very much we always thought of ourselves as an album band and I think most of our contemporaries, you know, people like Traffic and, and, um, and you know, Jethro Tell, we, we, we really all saw ourselves as album bands and, and that was the art form and the single was just something to uh, attract attention.
0: Throughout your career, you've never seemed to have cared for it much, really, have you? You've managed to get yourself into a place where you don't need that sort of fame.
1: Well, I've, I've always been an album act at, at a time when it hasn't uh, always been a good idea. Uh, You know, there's no such thing as albums anymore, really. Um, But I'm I'm still making them. uh, And it doesn't necessarily get you you noticed anymore. If if I sell more books than records, I should be extremely upset. It's quite possible. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite possible, possible, yeah. Um, So, uh, um, yeah, you know, I've always been really uh, concerned to make what I I think is the best music I can make. And I've really been unconcerned about... um, you know commerciality about selling records uh if you're on a record label that there's always you know someone will say oh i i hear that as a single you know let's 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 work on that one as a single and you say well okay if that's of use to you then great um please do that but um it, it's never an area i get particularly excited about
0: I keep reminding myself when I'm listening back to some of those tracks like uh, songs like A Sailor's Life or Matty Groves and Sloth that you're only 19, around 19 years old at the time um, and you give Mm. some great outlines of recordings of those songs. What what reaction do you have when you listen back to it? Because some of the guitar playing is astonishing.
1: Well, the guitar playing, I I can always think I can do better, so, so that's not always a good uh, thing to focus on, but uh, the actual records, I, I, I think, um, I'm, I'm glad that we had John Wood and Joe Boyd uh, producing the very natural sounding records, you know, that there's no hype on those records, there's no flanging and massive, massive echo or anything, I mean they're very, very honest recordings uh, and it's extremely well recorded as well and also has that, that great analogue warmth to it, so, so I think they're great sounding records, first of all, as are all the records that, that, that Joe boy did with people like like Nick, Nick Drake you know and um, and the incredible string band I mean they're, they're great sounding records so they haven't aged in that way. And I think the performances are, in some cases, are really good. I think Sailor's Life is a sort of miraculous track uh, because it was it was it was one take only, and we we did things on 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 that the, the, on that track that um, still surprised me. I, you know, I think the drumming is just amazing on 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 that, on that track, and 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 so some of the things that come in uh, as we're recording it, as we're playing it, really for the first time, are, are really uh, uh, extraordinary. And I don't think we could have repeated the, the spontaneity of that.
0: Were you using the Fender Stratocaster on that track?
1: I'm playing a uh, playing a uh, playing Les Paul on that track.
0: Les Paul. Okay, so you be you eventually decided to use the Stratocaster, or the or the Telecaster? Did you be instead of the Les Paul?
1: Yeah, I switched to a Stratocaster. I mean, but probably just after that, probably right. later on that year. I switched it to, to to a strat. Yeah.
0: Why Why did you do that? Was it just a particular sound that the strat had that you
1: just Yeah, I, I just wanted a little more bite to the sound. You know, a, a bit more, a bit more wire in in the in the process. You know, um, I, you know, fenders are very honest in some ways. I mean, they're, they're very kind of basic. You know, blunt instruments, if you like. Um, and uh, you know, I always loved, uh, you know, the sound of Hank Marvin playing a Strat and, um, and I loved other Fender players like, like Jimmy Bryant and um, uh, maybe Robbie Robertson. So uh, it, it was, uh, you know, just um, trying to get the sound in my head into my fingers. You
0: mentioned Robbie Robertson and that's a, there's some great stuff there about, you know, the effect the band had
2: music mm-hmm. at the
0: time, you know, and on you and, and Fairport as well as, you know, people like Eric Clapton.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that, uh first, band album really had a, had a big effect on, on, on the London music scene uh, as, as far as I could see it you know you have bands like Spooky Tooth um, suddenly playing everything in this sort of slow 4-4 you know um, try, trying to sound like the weight but um, you know the, the feel on those, on those band songs is, is elusive they were so good at making everything swing they're such a deep knowledge of American roots music that they blended it seamlessly and when they were writing songs uh, the songs were absolutely in that tradition Whereas I think for the English bands, everything was slightly secondhand when you were trying to play in an American style. You know, you learnt it off records for the most part. And not to say there they weren't great musicians, um, because there were, but, but it, was, it just came out a little bit differently. And so, I mean, for, for Fairport, that was a real watershed because we, we thought, well, well, this record is so good and so much, you know, what Fairport are almost uh, aiming for, you know, the, the, this kind of great feel and, and swing and, and um, you know, our, our connection to tradition that, that we really have to stop there and, and say, we, we need to pursue our own tradition much more. We, we need to go back to the music of the British Isles and try to blend that with uh, rock music and and see what happens with that. Do you still use the Stratocaster on stage? Mm. Well, I do, yeah. Um, uh, It's a a different one, but (laughs) (laughs) I've been through a few uh, since then. Yeah, um, for the most part, I do, yeah. Uh, I I use other guitars as well, but um, I use a Fender Stratocaster. I've got Telecasters. I've I've got got Gibsons as well. Um, uh, Yeah, I I probably um, switch it around a bit more in the studio.
3: A sailor's life—it is a merry life. He robs younger. true
0: There was one pivotal event in the history of Fairport Convention which is the car crash in which you and your friends were involved and your friend along with Martin Lamble were killed and it was a pivotal moment in everybody's life in the band, I guess. It must have been difficult to write about that.
1: It was very difficult, yeah. Um, obviously, I had to write about it if I was writing about that time. Um, and it was, just, so it was pivotal, so I couldn't avoid it. I, I just really tried to be honest. I tried to be as honest as I could uh, and just put the, put the facts down. You know, this is what happened. Um, and this is how we, we felt. It, and and uh, this, this is what we went through. And this is how we came out the other side. Probably you know what we didn't get therapy or counseling or anything though no, that that was not the thing that people did in those days i think it was still you know world war 2 mentality if you like uh, you kind of you know stiff up a lip and and you get on with it You get on with life but uh, i think it really traumatized us deeply and and it took us probably years to recover from that and uh, some of the decisions that we made i think were uh, affected by that experience um Perhaps the band would have been more stable if that hadn't happened.
0: I think also maybe it eventually led you to reassess your life and decide that you wanted to go solo when the fairport wasn't really doing what you envisioned that they should do or what you wanted to do, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think yeah, perhaps in in a in a different circumstance, I, I maybe I wouldn't have left Fairport, but I just felt um, burnt out to tell you the truth, really, uh, more than anything else. Yeah, you know, I've been in bands since I was what twelve or something, and, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'll go and do something different for a while. You know, I'll be in Sandy's band. I'll, I'll be a sideman, and then I can I can work on on songwriting. I, I wanted to develop as a songwriter, and I felt maybe restricted being
0: in Fairport. We have to talk about Sandy Denny, who you just mentioned, and you write a lot about in the book. And she seems such a mercurial figure. And there's a great story about how, when you were ad- auditioning her for the band, you at some point realised maybe it was afterwards that she was really auditioning you. It was uh, an interesting process.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a mutual audition, uh, as, as we realised uh, at some point. Well, Sandy obviously had some um, uh, sense of, the, of of her own value, of her own worth, and that was fair enough. I mean, she, she was amazing um, compared to the other singers that we auditioned. It was, it was absolute chalk and cheese. Uh, so. There's no question that, that that she would be our choice um, to 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 become a band member, but it's uh, also understand, understandable that she would um, want to figure out who we were and what we were capable of, and if, if that was going to be somewhere she'd want to spend um, a lot a, a lot of time, you know, um, uh, as a bit as a part of a of a musical group.
0: The interesting thing though is when she left, and even when you left, you all remained friends. There was no acrimony. You worked with her. You worked with the other other members of Fairport, you've stayed friends... Ever since, what, what do you think that yeah. says about your personality?
1: Well, I think it says a, a lot about Fairport generally. You know, for Fairport, it always seemed a bit like a family, and and uh, you know, the founder members of Fairport, you know, uh, Ashley and myself and and Simon, it yeah, started out as friends. Uh, you know, and um, and I don't think we ever really w- wanted to, to to shack up with with anyone who was um, you know problematic, or, you know, who, who was uh, you know difficult to work with or, or too egotistical or something. So, so I think the people who came into Fairport uh, kind of accepted that the general principal of the band and we all got on I mean it, it, you know we, 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 it, was, it was fun you know we, we had lots of laughs in, in Fairport and, and and when various people left I think it just seemed like the family got bigger more than anything else so, so Sandy started a band and Ian started a band but then we'd all be on on the same shows together so we're still hanging around um you know I helped to, Ian to work on his first album I helped Sandy on a couple of albums and, and I think also because that was a small music scene you know it didn't really cross over particularly into the main body of of uh of UK music at that time so it was inevitable in a sense that you work with the same three drummers and and five guitar players and and you know six bass players <laughs> And yeah. three fiddlers, you, you know, it, it, but people w- w- kind of went around, you know, from one band to another, and then they might end up in,
0: in the original band again.
1: But it was all very friendly. I, I can't think of any real animosity uh, amongst that whole group of people at all.
0: It was kind of like the uh, British version of the Wrecking Crew or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I think I think so. Yeah, um, but the Wrecking Crew never had the the, the pressure of, of, of going on the road, um, but they had the pressure of uh, of the red light going on, you know. So it's different, different pressure.
3: sky. All the birds are leaving. But how can they know it's time for them to go?
0: seem to share something reading this book uh, that strikes me you share something with people like bob dylan and neil young in that you always have wanted to move forward which is one of the reasons you decided to leave fairport but there's that stubborn vision of moving forward and doing something new or doing something different that's marked your career
1: well um Music should be about exploration and it should be about experimentation. And there's different ways to interpret that, I suppose. But, um, you know, I think I always wanted to be a pioneer of some sort or another. And hooking uh, up, particularly with Ashley, who's a, kind of an idealist, really, um, that really drove Fairport to, to try and be different. And uh, I think what keeps me going in music is this idea that there is something around the corner, you know, uh, and you can't see it. You have to keep keep moving in that direction. You have to keep moving forward before your curiosity can be satisfied and uh you know you know life is is just this 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 series of of bends in in the river you know it's just like you're floating down the river and you think well i'll I'll go a little bit further because i just want to see what's around this next bend and what's around this next bend or the next bend you know and that keeps you experimenting and exploring and thinking you know what else can i do what can i do this different uh what can i do that takes me further and sometimes those experiments fail But failure is is a part of the process. You know, you fail and you learn through failure, and uh, and hopefully that keeps you getting
2: better. (laughs) I'm
0: One memory you lost was when you got a memory of uh, going on stage as Henry the Human Fly. I think it was at the Troubadour, wasn't it? And
1: It was, yeah. yeah.
0: I have to say that Henry the Human Fly remains not only one of my favourite albums of all time, along with John and Beverly Martin's Road to Ruin, but it, it really converted me to... British folk rock. I think I was probably more into just rock music the ta- at the time. But hearing that album where you melded all those influences suddenly made me aware of all this other stuff that had already been happening and made me go back and rediscover all the Fairport albums. But but reading about hmm. it in the book, you, you've said you forgot to play more guitar on it. How did that happen?
1: <laughs> I think when I left Fairport, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm really going to de- develop this, this uh, songwriting style and you know i started writing these quirky songs when i was still in fairport and that continued and i thought well um i need a place to put these songs you know i've got 15 16 of these weird songs um i should do an album and, and that turned out to be henry and you know I, I thought at the time it was a bit eccentric and, and a bit surreal in places and uh mm-hmm. and i absolutely thought that that um, it was not going to have a broad appeal but but you know ireland uh, records bless them uh, put it out anyway uh, it's sold about three copies. So you obviously have one of them. <laughs> and I've, I've, met, I've, I've, met, I've met the other two people as well. So it's... Uh, um, I, and I sort of like the record. I think there's great ideas on the record. I wish I'd sung it better because I, I, di- I didn't sing it very well. I sang with no confidence whatsoever at that time. Uh, and I've always promised myself that, that i I go back and redo the vocals. But uh, getting my hands on, on the original eight tracks has been a, a problem. Um, I don't know where they are. So... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm sort of I'm sort sort of bemused, I suppose, that, that people like that record. I, I'm, I'm gratified in one sense, but I, I'm slightly amazed in another sense.
0: I would put it in my top ten albums of all time. I have to say,
1: crikey! Okay, well, okay.
0: Uh, maybe you know, it's from a sentimental. Point. I don't know. It had had such an effect on me, but you know, the other thing it captures, which you capture in the book brilliantly, and I'm not sure whether all the American audience get it is your sense of humor because i've watched a, a few of the q and a's and some of them are a little bit bemused by your sense of humor but it, that really comes through in the book which is lovely to see yeah
1: i think um You know, I think think Brits have a unique sense of humour. Australians have a unique sense of humour. Americans have a whole different kind of humour. And sometimes they don't get, you know, uh, the irony uh, um, that's inherent in anything, you know. And uh, it's a nice thing in some ways that that people take you at face value, you know. Uh, And Americans... you know i'll say, in a british way something like the opposite of what i mean you know <laughs> which the british understand immediately i mean they, they, they just understand that it's a, it's a joke i, I, I an american would just answer as, as if you, you you actually meant the opposite of, of, of what you're saying and and um, and can be insulted by that or, or can be uh, uh bemused by that <laughs> or confused by that so um yeah, I hope uh, Americans I I, I I think you know so some of the reviews I've seen seem to get the you know the the humor uh, or some of it anyway. So uh, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sarcasm is is uh, is a dicey one.
2: that bookmaker from crying I believe that he put one
0: said i want a final period covered by the book with linda and there was a fantastic book box set released last year with my favorite box set of the year which opened up just a whole treasure trove of discoveries including the albums that you made and um boy there's as you say you the, the it finishes in 1975 but there's a whole other book that could be Made of maybe just that tour or whatever. At, um, looking back on on that box set, it must bring back some terrific memories. I mean, maybe there are some painful memories. I don't know, but musically, there are some fantastic no.
1: memories. Well, interesting. <laughs> I suppose that that box set was really for, for the for the fans, you know, for the completists in in many ways. Um, you know Linda and I had to kind of uh, bite our lips um frequently uh, w- when you know the, the track list suggestions came through from Ireland you know when we said well you know really you want to put these out you know that this is this track isn't finished you know that this track you know it, you know that there's a better take of that somewhere um yeah, uh you know that this is a bad performance um so uh you know some stuff we really did veto as being just too basic you know too out of tune in some cases um other stuff where we, we kind of said well you know okay if you have to <laughs> if you have to stick this on um okay do it but but sometimes those are the tracks that that that, that the fans actually love um it, it's the stuff that, that sounds really rough around the edges and some sometimes the, the stuff that didn't actually get it finished um so uh you know there's a reason things don't make it on the album first of all there's a reason that that, that they you know they uh, remain on the cutting room floor um, in this case for uh, many many years but perhaps it's okay to let them sneak out at some point and and uh, and, and be something that, that people can enjoy or um, maybe it's instructive in a sense that, that, that this is where we were at this is what we were thinking um, and almost this, this you know this, this is a track and it's obvious why it didn't go on the album but maybe uh, it's got some virtues as well so it's kind of a you know for us it was kind of a strange process um to listen to that stuff and i don't think you know it didn't bring up good or bad memories it was just oh this is what we did uh, you know do you remember this song in some cases you know i i, I didn't remember songs um i i thought where'd that song come from <laughs> who wrote it oh i wrote it okay fair enough <laughs> so there was a bit of that you know um but uh, i mean I'm, I'm glad that you found something in it you liked that's
2: great
0: you know you might get the urge to write something else you never you never know in future although I can imagine this would have been quite an effort to sort of do you know because it's not easy but you've got a beautiful writing style and I was wondering is there have have there been people that you've read that have maybe you've taken on board some hints from what they're writing or you styles you admire because it's so easy to read and we can hear that too in the audio book you're reading the audio book which
1: yeah well I think first of all if if you're a Songwriter, you understand about rhythm in good prose. You know, you read Charles Dickens, you read you know the letters of Lord Byron or something. Um, there's a rhythm to the prose, uh, and so I was really after something something like that. And I think probably the 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 autobiography that I was most impressed with was the one by Beryl Markham. I don't know if you know, um, she, she was a, like a pioneering aviator in the 1920s uh, in Africa, and. Um, Extraordinary woman but my god what a writer a fabulous fabulous writer uh, she yeah, she was the first woman to fly solo across the atlantic i think as well you know and with the, the engine cutting out and all sort of incredible dramas but uh, just a beautiful writer and i i think probably if i had a role model it would be beryl i mean What's it was a book uh, west into the night or something westward into the night something like that a, yeah she I she, mean, she, she.
0: There's a lot of self-reflection. A lot of music books don't have that. I mean, I could name a few autobiographies by very well-known musicians that have almost no self-reflection. But you, <laughs> you, you probably know the ones I mean. Sold a lot I think books. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but you're you're able to not only describe what happened, some beautiful descriptions of your early life in um, Britain after the war, and and also your reaction. things and uh that's that's hard to do really isn't it um because it entails a bit of honesty as well i guess as a songwriter when you're pouring out your thoughts in song it maybe that makes it a bit easier having done it already in that
1: i think yeah i think so i think uh you know, you're very naked as a songwriter, or or, or you should be, maybe, uh, unless you're deliberately being obscure. But but uh, you, you do have to bare your soul, and when you get up on stage, you know it, it's acute. You know, but you, you, you're, so you're first of all writing this kind of self-revelatory stuff, and and then you're up on stage singing this self-revelatory stuff, and and um, you know, it's a lonely, naked thing. You can you can feel very alone up there, um, and I suppose um, having done that for a long time. Uh, You know the prose process, uh, and trying to be honest, um, wasn't that much of a stretch. It was fairly easy. Always
0: great to see you. Always and great to know that you're, uh, you know, hopefully back uh, performing at some stage.
1: Well, I've got stuff coming up uh, in June. uh, Outdoor stuff. So that's hooray. brilliant, uh, and uh, lots in the diary for the rest of the year and, and next year's chock block. So hooray!
0: Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate your time.
1: Uh, fa- thanks, Brian. Good, good to talk to you, mate. All, All right.
0: the best. Man. from the album Shoot Out the Lights in 1982 and Wall of Death. Great song. And we were talking to Richard Thompson about his book Bees Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975. And the other selections we heard during the interview. The title track of I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, released back in 1974 from Richard Thompson's debut solo album Henry the Human Fly in 1972 we heard the angels took my racehorse away. Richard and a bunch of his friends including Sandy Denny and Linda Thompson with The Bunch on the Rock On album of 72, My Girl in the Month of May and some Fairport convention selections Who Knows Where the Time Goes from Unhalf Bricking, A Sailor's Life also from that album of 1969 and Matty Groves from Legion Leaf also 1969 and in fact uh, for featuring, of course, the vocals of Sandy Denny, and It's All Right, Ma, It's Only Witchcraft from the first Fairport Convention album of 1968 and Beeswing, the title of the memoir and one of Richard's great songs from Mirror Blue in 1974. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Richard Thompson and you can join me again on a Rhythms podcast if you want to check out the magazine, rhythms.com.au and you might even feel inclined to subscribe and get one of our free download cards that we include with the magazine. Every two months. Thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you on the next Rhythms podcast.
2: <laughs>